Welcome to the Hotel Analyst podcast, your weekly dose of 20 minutes or so of thoughts of matters at the moment in and around the hotel investment space and allied bits of operational real estate too. Uh, I'm sat here with uh, Andrew Sankster, the editorial director of Hotel Analyst. My name is Chris Bound, the editor at Hotel Analyst, and we're going to start this week by taking a look at the business of branded residences. Um, this is a, an interesting niche that keeps getting bigger and bigger and there does seem to be no end to the desire from consumers to buy an apartment that has got Ritz-Carlton or some other hotel like brand or perhaps some other sort of brand above the front door. Um, for the hotel sector it's a great opportunity because often uh, these things can be built alongside an existing hotel. Um, for developers uh, if they're building a hotel and they build apartments alongside, it's great, a great funder of the development because they can usually sell the apartments off plan. Um, uh, but we're increasingly, we're also seeing opportunities now where brand residences are being built as standalone units too. Now, the hotel sector doesn't have it all its own way. There are other non-hotel brands who are sort of gently trying to elbow their way into this space from the world of fashion, uh, high-end cars and the like. Um, but of course, you know, fundamentally, this is about hospitality. The idea is that you buy a branded residence and you can enjoy uh, some of the aura of the brand, but also you can enjoy some of the uh, support elements that you might expect to get from a hotel sort of brand. So some elements of hospitality, perhaps some elements of, of um, being looked after in the, in the means of room service and various other support amenities, perhaps a health club and so on and so forth. Um, and we've been speaking to uh, one of the uh, big guns in this space, which is Accor, who have Jeff Tistel in charge of uh, a new division that they have put together, which kind of brings together all their expertise in this area. And they're certainly looking to take a hold of um, the hand of developers early on in the process so they can guide them through the whole business of planning, building, selling and operating uh, managing into the future their brand residences. Um, Accor is of course fighting to uh, keep a neck and neck with Marriott who claim to be the world leader in brand residences although it's Accor that's got more brands that it's offering to those developers who would be building the, the apartment blocks. So this seems to be according to uh, market watchers a niche that's got lots more legs and who wouldn't love it if there's a sort of 30% plus brand premium for selling an apartment with a hotel brand against it, as opposed to just some smart address. Yeah, there's lots and lots of publicity seem to be heading the way of branded residents at the moment. Um, last week, the FT had a big fluff article in its colour supplement with the headline from Armani to Aston Martin, the world's luxury powerhouses want to keep you sweet, spelt S-U-I-T-E. Ho, ho, ho. Um <laughs> The breathless article ran through a whole bunch of uh, developments, um, hardly any of which had um, brands other than hotel brands associated with them. Um, and that's not entirely surprising, as I think, whereas you've got, you know, Armani and Aston certainly have great brands i don't think they have a lot more to offer the residential developer apart from that hoteliers bring a whole parcel of goodies to them um, not just the brand name itself but actually hoteliers are used to licensing brand names um, and they have all of the services um, 
um, to boot as well, not just the sort of uh, management services, but the development services, the design services, and all these kind of things they have access to as well, and a great deal of experience in there with that. And so you've got this um, appeal um, for a resi developer to come along and say yeah let's hire in a uh, um a hotel brand company to give us a hand with this and as you say chris it's certainly very attractive uh from um the developer perspective because of that uplift you get with the the hotel brand being in there and hotel is attractive from a hotel brand company perspective as well uh, uh, jll reckons it's something between one percent and six percent of each uh, flat or condominium whatever you want to call it um, being sold um, that goes straight into the pocket of the, the hotel brand owner um, at that point and then in addition to that there's there's fees relating to technical and design services um, and there's fees on an ongoing basis if the hotelier is in there as part of the homeowners association and providing management services there as well there's a fee which is as much as two thousand uh, dollars per unit per year so there's all you know all of these things make it quite an attractive um, area now the thing is it's been relatively small scale for you know we're talking onesies and twosies here and there a year kind of thing um, it, it, it's getting bigger and you you had a chat with Accor I mean Marriott is the the big um, player here although Accor has actually caught up quite considerably on it mm. now Marriott inherited Starwood's um, resi um, people and um, Starwood had a whole division which was geared towards residential development and Marriott sort of run with that um, um, whereas <laughs> to be honest d during the uh, merger as it was described it was you know it was clearly a takeover and most of the Starwood people got the um, got the elbow but not in the case of these uh, resi developers who Marriott um, absorbed into the uh, the greater being of Marriott um, and have carried on rolling with it um, but Accor now uh, they've got 135 branded residents either operating or in development which you know is a meaningful number for them um, and I think what also is interesting is that in the wider hotel development piece where you've got mixed-use developments you you might have a hotel um, and you'll have a, a branded residence alongside that and that gets Accor into the mix with the wider developer um, as well and, and they're coming there you know not just with their development expertise but also distribution know-how as well um, so hoteliers know how to stick the the flats or apartments into a um, into a pool um, a rental pool um, which is you know something that's quite appealing to some owners if, if it's a sort of second third or fourth home as it is <laughs> in in some cases so you can see how this really plays into the um, the strengths of hoteliers and why they're the sort of um, the main people uh, um, rather than the, these other brands that were mentioned in the FD piece um, and I, also and it's a word i just can't resist using and i'm going to use it more than once on this podcast in another <laughs> segment but hotelification it's very much that as well it's that hotelification of of the you know the high-end residential market we're seeing here and we're going to see a lot more of it i think of our films and uh, there was one a while back called back to the future i seem to remember and it seems to apply with our next topic because we're going to be talking about soho house 
um, the kind of club and hotel and restaurant and bar group that uh, not so long ago, uh, as they strode towards uh, a listing on the US stock market, decided to change their name to the Membership Collective Group. Well, they've decided that mouthful remains a bit of a mouthful, and so her house seems a lot simpler. So they're going back to their old name um, as they continue to drive the business forward. We just had their full year results and a reasonably impressive uh, set they are because uh, this business, this is a business that since it's listed, um, has uh, moved quite hard to turn itself around from being something that was sort of investing for growth and not worrying about making the profits uh, to um, a business that's now very focused on um, building itself profitably and being much more disciplined about how it deploys cash and um, looks like uh, it's it's doing so so far without losing any of the magic that's been driving more and more people to want to be on that membership waiting list um, and they're, they're growing the membership while they're also maintaining that list of excited individuals desperate to get a slice of the the magic that is being part of Soho House. So um, uh, so far so good. Uh, the new guys at the helm who've taken over from the, the founder uh, seem quite focused on um, getting all this right they're uh, they're they're spending less on staffing but they're very focused on ensuring the customers remain happy so it's not just a kind of a an accountancy trick um which might unravel in a year or two time uh, but uh, all looks quite good and uh, what's also interesting from a hotel point of view is that um, within the mix they've been trying a variety of additional smaller brands um, and um, those so far several of them have just got two three or four outlets uh, but uh, if they get these right then there's potential quite or quite a bit of potential for them to considerably grow their business over the coming years and of course they've now got to a point so house where they don't need to do the heavy lifting themselves and one of the points they made in their presentation analysts was that they are now at the, at the point where their brand is strong enough that they get developers coming to them to offer them the opportunity to take on asset-like properties rather than them having to go out and look for the buildings and do the development themselves. So uh, it feels like they are getting to a point where, unlike many of their other uh, peers that are perhaps listed by reversing into a, uh, a US investment vehicle uh, in the last few years, they, they do at least look like they're now on a pretty good roadmap to some fairly decent profitability. Yeah, no, I think that profitability thing is the thing that matters. Um, they're not quite reverting entirely to their old name. They've got a little appendage and co. Okay. So it's Soho House and Co. Is the yeah, but you're pretty much spot on, Chris. It is it is back to the future. I mean, quite why they wanted to be called themselves the Membership Collective Group, which was all a bit <laughs> bit weird. It's uh, um, didn't it wasn't a name that tripped off the tongue. I guess. Um, it, it, you know what it did do was emphasize the the membership piece which is you know we've been very excited about that as a business model um and the potential it, it may offer now we've seen it in other sectors notably technology where you've got this reoccurring revenue bundle thing going on um and all of the sort of technology software houses they've uh, switched into this where you, you used to buy your cd-rom remember mm -hmm. those um you now get software as a service and they've switched into that model and you pay a set fee every month or so and obviously all the streamers are into this kind of approach as well and all the music services the spotify and apples and what have you uh, are all into this thing um 
not really seen it and you could see why it's a very um um, compelling business model because you've got that recurring revenue out there um and it looks very nice if you can get the customers to to buy into you with that um we've not really seen it applied that well yet into in the whole hospitality space and i would suggest it's still a little bit of a case not proven at the moment with uh, soho house and co in terms of what they're trying to do it was interesting looking at their results um they're as you mentioned chris it, it's membership growth uh, rather than house or uh, net unit growth which is going to be the emphasis for them uh, for the next period um and um partly this is as you say it, it's about driving profitability there um now the thing is i think with any membership thing um the more people you have in a particular property the less enticing is going to mm. be um so you turn up and you know your favorite sofa is occupied by by another member it, it isn't too thrilling really so i think that's quite a tricky one to balance and they've done this thing where they're rewarding the the management of each of their houses um a lot more according to customer satisfaction which hopefully will ensure that that doesn't get too out of hand and there's some pushback on mm. that but there is a bit of tension there growing that that you know let's grow as many members as we can if we're not growing houses at the same time um so i think there's a is a problem there but um you know this profitability thing I, i'm not quite understanding why they've had such a struggle to get to profit um and and it really it at the moment it's not looking that compelling so i think they've got a lot to do here to demonstrate that they're able to to, to you know that, that they've got a business which is you know genuinely something fantastic i mean they bragged about robust member retention mm -hmm. um they bragged about having record member applications and they bragged about having a record wait list and yet they barely made any money <laughs> so <laughs> they've got to show that um and you know i'm, I'm not sure quite what, what what's going to happen to to enable them to show that but uh, they do need to and show as you it. say if, if at the margins uh, people end up feeling the you know the whole thing's being rather milked then the, the magic of the membership starts to diminish doesn't it yeah and, and i think a point we have made before about them is that groucho marx quote i would never join a club that would have me as a member um and there is this you know you, you lose the exclusivity thing is all yeah. isn't it it's something that's difficult to get into and you really want it well as soon as you lose that allure um there's a real problem with that um you know and, and you, you see this with the high-end brands they um they, they can suddenly fall off their pedestal if you make them too much of a commodity so um what's that um again i think we mentioned this in the past but pierre cardin if you remember that as a it, it was once upon a time some high-end brand but now you can go and buy a sort of dodgy wallet of a market stall with pierre cardin <laughs> embossed on it <laughs> and, it's, and it's not always fake actually it's just a genuine thing and it's just how you know that brand sort of was diminished by it and there is a real risk here with a membership club going that same way so they're, they're walking a bit of a tightrope um but they've got to show they, they can make money now we're going to uh, risk 
Andrew saying that word hotelification again at least once or twice because we're going to start talking about uh, the student accommodation sector and um, uh, we've we've had a look at the results from a couple of the UK listed uh, operators of purpose-built student accommodation um, who let's face it they you know they, they had a bit of a rough patch through the pandemic like many many real estate and operational businesses but they've come out fighting again and um, looks like they're going great guns once more because you know uh, those of us who are old enough to have lived in rotten old student digs when we were students many many years ago are still probably struggling to understand how this quite works but uh, year on year there seems to be more and more people coming to be students in the UK uh, university market uh, and year on year more and more of them seem to want to uh, live uh, in these rather smart uh, suitably developed and designed purpose-built student accommodation blocks uh, rather than uh, in that damp dingy house that we shared and did us so well all those years ago um, so uh, we've looked at uh, Unite and Empiric um, and both have uh, got an absolutely stonking set of results they have got their occupancy back up to something like 98% this year uh, they've been able to increase their rents uh, a reasonable amount although perhaps not quite as much as current inflation levels um, and you know they look like they're really good at honing what they do and eking every little bit of extra out of the business both interestingly are also looking uh, to diversify um, and both having a little bit of a uh, an attempt at uh, one or two other things in and around the uh, the living and real estate space so um, uh, but you know student market just seems to be going on from strength to strength hmm so the hotel parallels here are, I mean, the PBSA, the purpose-built student accommodation market, I think uh, we've made this reference before, looks a lot like the branded budget hotel sector. Um, and just as the branded budget hotels are chasing out the smaller, often one-off um, owner-operated um, unbranded properties, you see a similar thing going on with PBSA chasing out their houses of multiple occupation, which are typically um, small-scale owners, undercapitalized and tired and facing a whole host of challenges trying to keep up. Um, so you, you see this growth out there. But I think the PBSA thing has just this remarkably um, robust demand mm. backdrop even more so than budget hotels there's nothing wrong with the budget hotel um, demand backdrop I think it's remarkably good but it's even better I would suggest for PPSA um, so what you're seeing I mean the, the um, is, is that uh, the current applications for university are this is the UK of course we're just talking about uh, are five percent above pre pre-pandemic levels um, and there's this uh, growth in under um, 18 year olds so that between now and 2030 there's going to be 19 percent more um, 18 year olds I mean I think then the demographics actually start working against PBSA right. so right right now um, it, 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 we look you know set for several years of, of of good times from a pbsa perspective um and where we've got hotelification in pbsa um it's it's around areas you know such as um market segmentation um and it you know using kpis very similar to um um, um those 
um, very familiar to hotel operators talk of net promoter scores there's lots of chat about check-in check-out customer apps 24 7 customer service all of this stuff um where i think um maybe we're certainly guilty of getting slightly overexcited is that oh they're going to be switching into some sort of short lets thing um that was an obvious bit potentially here you know over the summer or whatever but where they've got this thing of massive um more demand than they have actual supply i think you know that they just sign students up for mm. the full year so they don't need to worry about it now i think as things get a bit tighter um they will have to look at sweating their assets a bit harder and it's going to be sort of location specific um you know the, the big people we're talking about here the two big REITs um they are focused very much on um the big student centers um where i don't think there's going to be any significant decline in demand uh for some time um and and the supply situation is also going to be very favorable too so i don't see that but maybe we might see a bit of that in the um the, in in the sort of the, those areas where you've 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 got uh student accommodation providers which are um in you know slightly patchier bits um where maybe the demand isn't going to be as strong um so maybe we'll see a bit of that um change there um but right now i think the interest is uh as you talked about chris this this move into adjacent living sectors so um talk about the built to rent sector which is uh unite the biggest uh, uh student reed player they've got this place in stratford which they bought which was an existing btr scheme um and they're refitting it out um um just making it um, um just tweaking it a bit to make it uh, work a, a bit better from their perspective um so that's quite interest quite interesting to see them move into that using a lot of those pbsa skills but the obvious bit of that that residential rental market is of course co-living sort of the next stage along from um, student housing so it's the young professionals in their first job uh, first or second job um, quite happy to have a um, sort of shared more shared environment um, and here um, is interesting was what was the third REIT um, GCP Gravis they were the third PBSA REIT that they delisted and they were about to launch um, a co-living REIT uh, back in well just over a year ago um, it was derailed well they blamed the uh, uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine for derailing it um, now they haven't said where that is at at the moment they just put it on pause um but what they did do last month they launched a report talking about co-living is here to stay um clearly signaling that they they like the look of it and uh, want to get in on it um and there's just as with pbsa there's a bunch of factors which are you know very supportive of its rollout right now um co-living has similar things and gcp sites um, urbanization rental inflation socio-demographic changes housing shortages and the need for social engagement as all reasons to help drive interest and appetite for um, co-living um, and i think what is interesting in 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 all of this it, it, it's 
looking more and more and taking more and more from the hotel sector um, and these markets um, which are coming up are very rapidly growing markets and they represent big shake-ups in the living real estate sector and it's going to have a very significant impact I would argue um, in the medium to long term over the hotel investment landscape and now we turn to our five star and no star awards of the week and we're giving five stars this week to the uh, senior management at uh, TUI Group, the uh, the German uh, tour group and holiday group, who have uh, arranged a refinancing, a, the share issue, which will uh, see them raise about 1.8 billion euros um, and, most importantly, fully repay the, uh, the COVID bailout loans that they received from the German government. So um, uh, I think at the time they were they looked like quite big loans and they looked like... They were perhaps saving something that was should, shouldn't be saved. So um, uh, great to see Tui back uh, up above water again. Well, I, I think a clear demonstration of the resilience of the mm -hmm. tourism market. Um, I don't think the shareholders of Tui will be giving no? it five okay. stars, however. <laughs> so um, <laughs> Morgan Stanley says that the discount that's being offered is 65% to the closing mm. price, which is one hell of a discount. <laughs> um, so um, I, I wouldn't be super thrilled with that. I mean, you've, you've already had a bit of a roller coaster ride, as it were, as it was. So, um, and yet this is, but hopefully this will be the last of the kickings you're going to get. And probably, um, probably looking a bit better than bank shares. And some of the European banks right now as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah, certainly better than if you were a, uh, a bond holder in Credit Suisse, shall we say? Yes, um, yes. You could be in a worse place, but uh, yeah. Um, but five stars for tourism and no stars sure. this week for um, the U.S. authorities, who uh, it's been pointed out uh, are failing miserably to deliver visas. For uh, visitors from some key key uh, target countries, this means that of course the, uh, the visitors who would like to visit the US can't. And um, uh, these numbers, <laughs> the the headline numbers, have been pointed out um, by the US Travel Association. Uh, thus, if you're a Colombian who'd like like to get a visa to go and visit the US, you're going to have to wait an average of 886 days. If you live in Brazil, you're going to have to wait 492 days on average. If you're an Indian uh, resident wishing to go and visit the US, you're going to have to wait 458 days for your visa. This is all apparently going to cost the Americans billions of dollars um, and probably put off about, they estimate, 2.6 million visitors in 2023. Visitors who, frankly, will probably go somewhere else instead. Well, the, the one that you, you left off there was Mexico, Chris, 587 yeah. days, um, given how porous <laughs> the border is in the absence yes. of the wall that was uh, former president. No wonder people um, take the shortcut. Um, <laughs> <yes. laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, it's quite, I mean, 587, that I means it's like, you know, it's like telling the French you can have to wait 587 days to come over. It it's is. just bizarre, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Well, and, uh, uh, yeah, one, more, one more thing for, for Biden to fix. Yeah, and on that Saturday note, we'll say goodbye for now.